Welcome to the 10th Beaumont Lecture, uh, which is held occasionally by the Air Law Group in honour of the great Major Beaumont. We hold it uh, when we feel the urge and when we find someone who we think is a, a suitably august speaker. And I'm very, very pleased to say that we have someone who is of that rank tonight, namely George N. Tompkins Jr., one of the greatest lawyers in the aviation field to be produced by the USA. It would be customary at this point to list the speaker's accomplishments uh, to prove that proposition. However, I'm not going to do that for three reasons. First of all, because in George's case it would take far too long. Secondly, because the title of his talk suggests that much of it is going to be covered by him in what he says, and I don't want to steal his lines. And thirdly, because many of you know much of it already anyway. I had a drink with George uh, the other day, and he told me that he could do his talk in either five minutes or two hours. I have asked him to do something in between. And I've done that so that we have a bit of time for questions afterwards and because I don't think we should show undue haste in reaching for the drinks reception which Clyde and Co. have generously agreed to sponsor afterwards. And I thank them very much for that on behalf of the Air Law Group. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my very great honour and privilege to invite Mr. Tompkins to address us on his chosen topic, the long and winding road from Warsaw 1929 to Montreal 1999, a personal odyssey of 50 years, the challenges ahead. Thank you, Robert, for that very kind introduction, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for for being here. It must be raining hard outside, so you came in to get away from the rain, and I appreciate it. I'm very honored to have been invited to give this lecture, the 10th Beaumont Memorial Lecture. When I received the invitation for Robert, coincidentally on the same day that I achieved the, the milestone of 80 years of age, I hastily accepted his invitation in the excitement of the moment of becoming 80 years of age against all odds of my having achieved that age, which had been quoted by my colleagues for over 30 years. I then said to myself, my God, what have I done? How can I possibly interest Robert's constituents in my professional life spanning some 50 years, particularly when I have forgotten more details than I remember? Then I did some research to educate myself on the identity and background of some of those who had delivered past Beaumont lectures. Peter Martin, Harold Kaplan, both outstanding shapers of international air law, <clears throat> and educators of mine for many years. Lauren Clark, general counsel of IATA. Joubert Guillaume, former president of the International Court of Justice, both of whom at different times were to accompany me on the road to Montreal. Robert Webb, general counsel of British Airways. Rob once introduced me as the closest thing to a real trial lawyer that the American bar had ever been able to produce. And on another occasion, he referred to me as the Frank Sinatra of the American trial bar. 
I was flattered by both introductions, I think. During the course of a heated debate recently, where I was opposing as a lone dissenter board action which I thought was absolutely outrageous, I was described by the president of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers as being as wise as an owl, as having the courage of a lion, and as being as stubborn as a mule. I question whether I can ever again be ascribed as wise after accepting the daunting task of delivering this lecture, following the footsteps of those distinguished predecessors that I have mentioned. I gladly accept the comment that I have the courage of a lion, as it has taken the courage of a lion to defend the Warsaw system in the courts of the United States for 50 years and longer, while at the same time working to improve the system against all odds and the prevailing interests of the airlines that I was defending. As for being stubborn as a mule, uh, there are many in this room, I am sure, who can attest to the fact that on occasion I have been as stubborn as a mule, but if you want confirmation, you can check with my wife of 54 years, who will confirm that characterization without hesitation or qualification. I'm often asked how I became an aviation lawyer, and I answer, truthfully and factually, by accident. The accident which triggered my becoming an aviation lawyer happened in 1958, when Cyril Hyde Condon fell on a slippery sidewalk in Miami and broke his hip. He was the head of a three-person law firm. I was the 85th lawyer in a big Wall Street law firm. I had wanted trial work, and I couldn't get any there, and uh, so I needed a body, so I was hired. And I literally was in court the day I started in the office as he gave me the opportunity to try small cases on my own and to assist his partners on the bigger cases. Most of the cases that were in existence when I joined the firm involved international air transportation and the Warsaw liability rules. And so I had a very quick introduction to the system about which I knew absolutely nothing. If I may digress briefly, I would like to make a couple of comments about Major Beaumont. I was fortunate to have met him here in London in 1960 uh, when Cy asked me to come over when he couldn't to take care of a few things. And I met uh, Major Beaumont. He uh, treated me like an equal, which was true of every person I met in London that was a friend of Cy Condon's, even though I was not an equal. I remember going in to see Ray Jeffs, who uh, was then with the Aviation in General. And I gave my card to the commissioner, and I said, I'm a lawyer from New York. I'd like to see Mr. Jeffs. And he picked up the phone and called through to Ray Jess and said, yes, sir, there's a lawyer here from New York that would like to see you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll tell him, sir. So I knew I was going to get the door. So I whispered in the commissioner's ear, could you tell him that I work for Cy Condon in London, in, in New York? And uh, he said, the gentleman says he works for a Mr. Cy Condon in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. And I was ushered into Ray Jeff's office. I walked into his office and he said, you silly bugger, why didn't you say you worked for Cy Condon? Of course, I'd never met Ray Jess in my life. And he said, before you sit down, I have a question for you. What happened with that TWA plane last night at Kennedy? It had a hard landing and then they towed it off the runway. 
in order to keep the runway open. And there was damage caused on both occasions. If I got two accidents or one accident, I said, do you have two deductibles or one deductible? He said to me, you and I are going to get along very well, <laughs> uh, which we did. I found out, however, in our conversation between Major Beaumont and our, myself that we had a number of things in common. We both became involved in aviation law by accident, although his was a real accident, mine was side condoms falling on a sidewalk. Major Beaumont decided that after becoming involved in the air crash legal proceedings, he should learn something about air law, so he took some formal courses in that subject. I knew absolutely nothing about air law when I joined Condon and Forsyth, so I immediately embarked upon a on the course, a job a course of on the job training in air law. Although I only had a couple of years of exposure to the Warsaw Convention, Major Bowen and I both agreed that it needed improvement, but for different reasons. He wanted to make it easier for airlines to issue their travel documents. I wanted to see the limits of liability increase substantially and virtually eliminated. Although we didn't know it at the time, we were going to fulfill similar roles 70 years apart. Major Beaumont was the advisor to the International Air Traffic Association, the predecessor to IATA, in Warsaw in 1929, and was instrumental in bringing about the Warsaw Convention. I found myself the legal advisor to IATA in 1999, <clears throat> in Montreal and played a similar role in Montreal. The only difference was that in 1929, the IATA representatives were not allowed in the conference room. They were not allowed to speak. They were not allowed to submit papers, and they confined their activity to propaganda with the airline representatives to get their points across. Of course, we did the same thing in Montreal, although we were officially designated as an observer to the Montreal Conference, so we had direct access to the delegates of the countries and could do face-to-face -face lobbying to protect the interests of the airlines, what we knew the airlines wanted to have done, just as Sean Gates was there to protect the interests of the insurers, and the interests of the insurers and the airlines were not necessarily the same. Major Beaumont was acknowledged as being the driving force behind the 1955 Hague Protocol, and I, I remember he was uh, quoted a quote of uh, one of the delegates or the chairman of the Hague Conference said that Major Beaumont, quote, was one of the most insistent and useful promoters of the work that had finally been accomplished at the Hague. So I concluded that perhaps he had a little bit of the mule in him, or more appropriately for an English gentleman, a bit of the bulldog, as he led the Warsaw, the Hague Conference to a, a, the conclusion. On a personal note, I found out that we both had a personal passion, which was ice skating. His, of course, uh, uh, very famous in singles and pairs figure skating at the international championship level, myself as a uh, smash-mouth uh, junior ice hockey player in Canada, and uh, <clears throat> where I grew up. And when I was not selected to play in the National Hockey League, incidentally won last night by the Boston Bruins, uh, of uh, beating Vancouver, the general manager of, manager of which is the son of the my teammate from the 1940s and 50s in uh, Canada where we played junior hockey. I'd like to share with you some of my experiences, and I'll try not to bore you uh, with them. Uh, they have been very interesting, a long journey. 
I've always been an advocate of the Warsaw Convention as a choice of law instrument. I have always been opposed to an arbitrary limitation of liability uh, for passenger injury or death and worked very hard to get rid of it so as to preserve the Warsaw Convention in the United States because if we didn't do something about the limitation of liability, the United States was always threatening to withdraw from Warsaw, which would be a disaster in the international aviation community. And they served notice once that they would do it, and I ought to save the day uh, two days before the denunciation would come into effect in 1966. One of the cherished mementos of my journey is a caricature uh, created by my longtime friend and colleague Sean Gage, Gates, which he signed and gave to me in 1958 at a conference in Atlanta uh, after the IATA agreements of 1995 and 1996 had come into effect and before the Montreal Convention took place, and I'd like to show it to you. Sean shows me as the slayer of the Warsaw Convention and it says to George Tompkins affectionately, Sean Gates, May 5, 1998. I see the lance as the lifeline that I was trying to get into the Warsaw Convention to keep the fire going and not put it out. Some of the early cases involving the Warsaw Convention were famous cases in which I was involved uh, as, as one of the defense team. One of the very early cases was the Berner case in 1961 involving the death of a famous pianist by the name of William Capel. The trial went on for many weeks and one day before the trial started, Austin Magner walked by my office and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, just messing around with a couple of things. Well, let's go. We have to be in court in 30 minutes. And we went down to the Southern District Federal Courthouse in New York and he told me we were going to try the Burner case. And I knew nothing about the Burner case. It involved a BCPA accident of 1953, well before my time. And we were standing at, outside the courtroom and this entourage came around the corridor led by Melvin Belli, the most famous plaintiff's lawyer in the United States in those days. And I said to Austin, boy, there must be something big going on here today. Here comes Melvin Belli. He said, yes, it's our case. So I was introduced to the big, the big names uh, very quickly, and Austin had me play an active role in that case. After three weeks of trial, the jury came in with a no willful misconduct verdict and no damages at all, not even the $8,300 because that's what Mr. Belli told the jury he wanted. He said, I want all the money or none. And the jury was a typical hard-nosed jury in those days, and they gave him none because they could not find willful misconduct. But that night at a dinner in a restaurant in New York, one of the men who was serving our table, the defense team was out relaxing, uh, said to me, Mr. Tompkins, you don't recognize me, but I was a juror on that case of yours that just finished down in the Southern District of New York. And I said, well, now I recognize you. I didn't recognize you in your uniform. And I said, thank you very much for serving as a juror and for the verdict, because the verdict had to be unanimous in our federal court. He said, well, Mr. Tompkins, we did what the law told us we had to do. We didn't want to do it, because we think that limitation is bad. But that's the law, and we were told to follow the law, and we did. But Mr. Tompkins, I want you to promise me you'll do something about that law. And so that inspired me in two ways. I believe in the jury system, and I always will. It works, in spite of what you read in the press. And I believe in the Warsaw Convention, 
but I believe the limitation has to be changed, and eventually it was. Now, that was a revealing case for me. Um, we had a judge who had come to New York from California. We called him Belli's traveling judge. He had tried another case out of the same accident in San Francisco. The jury came in with a no willful misconduct verdict. The judge set the case, the verdict aside on the spot. And he said, I'm going to keep trying this case until I get a jury to find willful misconduct. Then he showed up in New York in our case, which was the big money case. We settled the other case for a very small, small amount of money. In New York in those days, a verdict uh, for the uh, a passenger killed in the case tried in New York would have been well over a million dollars. As it turned out, when the damage phase of the case was tried years later, it was $900,000. That was in 1963. Judge Ritter, we tried to disqualify. Judge Ritter was the visiting judge because of his attitude towards the Warsaw Convention. So we filed a motion to disqualify him as being biased and prejudiced against the law. Pretty daring thing. Of course, he denied it right away. And while everybody was at lunch, I went up to the clerk's office in the Court of Appeals and filed a mandamus position to have him removed. And the uh, clerk helped me with it. He knew the problem we were having. And he said, you go down and tell Judge Ritter to suspend the trial until tomorrow. You'll have a hearing with two judges of the Court of Appeals at 4 o'clock. They'll issue a decision tonight, and we'll see where we go from here. And they had the hearing. It went till 8 o'clock at night. We were told to hang around the court building. A decision would come down. The clerk gave us a decision at 9 o'clock and said, well, we hadn't proved that the judge was biased and prejudiced under the law, but they did agree that he was not applying the Warsaw Convention properly in his charge to the jury, and they assumed that when he charged the jury in this case, he would do as the Second Circuit tells him to do. Well, he didn't, but the jury found for the airline anyway. Two years later, Judge Ritter set aside that verdict, he wrote a 186-page opinion, finding willful misconduct as a matter of law. We appealed that decision. We were told we were too early because you have to have a final judgment, so we had to go through the trial, and the verdict was $900,000. On the, on the trial. Now, imagine the witnesses that we were confronted with on damages, if you think back to the 1960s and the 1950s. William Capel was the future Jose Turby. Jose Turby testified, Leopold Stokowski testified, um, the uh, Alexander Schneiderman, Isaac Stern, all testified. And the way they planned their case was one liability witness, two hit parade witnesses, we call them. And that went on for three weeks. But the jury didn't buy it. And that made me very pleased with the, the jury. Uh, Mrs. Capel was not allowed to be called Mrs. Capel because she had remarried. Accident was nine years before the trial. And she was in court every day, a very elegant lady, very nice lady, very well dressed. And uh, Austin Magner was very impressed with her as a person. And I said, Austin, when she testifies on trial, she's going to look like a charwoman in the witness stand, with apologies to charwomen. And she'll be wearing a black crepe dress and black stockings with a hole in them and black shoes and her hair tied in a bun. He said, you're out of your mind. I said, I'll bet you five bucks I'm right. Now, when she came to testify that morning, I was upstairs on the Lisi case, getting ready for that trial that was coming fairly soon. And I came back down and she was testifying and she was in the witness stand exactly as I had described. 
And Austin just quietly slipped me $5 under the table and looked at me and said nothing more. That case wound up fine, but you could tell that early that the jurors didn't like the limitation of liability. The next case was the Mertens case. Mertens case was an easy case. It was tried in 1963. Young man was a courier for the United States military, accompanying a secret cargo to Japan on a flying tiger aircraft. He was on the airplane when he was handed his ticket. It wasn't a ticket, it was just a boarding pass, and the plane left. Now, the, the trial judge said, as a matter of law, once the jury decided that he had actually been handed a ticket on the airplane, the trial judge said that was timely under Article Three of the Convention. I thought the judge was wrong, and if he'd stopped there, we'd have been better off. But then the jury found no willful misconduct, and the verdict was $8,300. When that case went up on appeal... Suddenly, the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, in an opinion written by Circuit Judge Thurgood Marshall, remember that name, decided that that delivery violated Article 3, Section 2, because it did not give the passengers sufficient time to take self-protective measures, such as getting off the plane, buying insurance, or some other asking for a higher limit. Of course, as a military courier, he couldn't get off the plane. There was no place to buy insurance, and it was just all a charade in the mind of Thurgood Marshall. But you could see he didn't like the limit of liability, $8,300. At that time, virtually all the limits of liability in the United States in state wrongful death statutes had been eliminated. The trend was definitely away from limits of liability in any type of case involving the death or injury of anybody caused by a wrongful act of another. But that was his decision. He said that that was uh, ineffective delivery and the purpose of the Article Three uh, statement as to the application of the Convention to the Transportation is to put the passenger on notice that if there is an accident, liability may be limited to the sum of $8,300. The Supreme Court didn't show any interest in that case, so we had to wind up trying that case on damages, and actually we settled it, and the parents of the young man, uh, Lieutenant Mertens, didn't want any money. We agreed on what the law would allow in damages, and he said, would you please give that money to the Flight Safety Foundation, which we did. Now, after the Mertens case was uh, decided, there was a case decided in the Ninth Circuit in California, the Warren case, also flying tigers. Here, a whole company of uh, military infantry people were handed boarding passes as they were at the bottom of the steps going up into the airplane. And the Ninth Circuit agreed with Judge Marshall. Now, along comes Lise, the Lisi case. Lisi case, the people had their tickets from anywhere from three to 30 days before they traveled. They were standard IATA tickets. But the judge in the Lisi case, before the trial, we had many of arguments with the judge and I about the case. After the case was over, we wound up at a, at a lawyer's party together and had a few drinks together and became very good friends. But during the trial, we were like the cobra and the mongoose from beginning to end. And uh, he referred to me as that uh, thick-headed airline lawyer or uh, wearisome Warsaw warrior, get that limitation out of here. All kinds of things were going on. We had a lot of fun, and we laughed about it afterwards. But anyway, in the Lisi case, 
he ruled in advance of the trial that the limit would not apply because the standard IATA ticket, which had been approved by the CAB 10 years earlier, the notice was too small, the print was too small, it wasn't in a different color, it was hidden in a thicket of conditions, and it's at war with the intent of the Warsaw Convention, which is to alert the passenger that your liability is going to be limited so you can take self-protective measures. Now that was a surprise, uh, and that was certified for an immediate appeal to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals surprisingly agreed and followed Mertens, and uh, Judge Kaufman wrote a, a very strong opinion against the airlines and against that ticket. There was a very strong dissent and said the majority, you have a three-judge panel in the Court of Appeals, he said the majority does not like the treaty, so they've rewritten it to suit their personal convictions. And that's wrong. Of course it's wrong, but they did it anyway. Now, we got that case into the Supreme Court, and we got the help of IATA, ATA, the government of Italy, the government of Canada, and the government of the United Kingdom, because they thought the treaty was being misinterpreted and would not be to their benefit in the long run. Before the court acted on the petition, they filed an order saying that they wanted the United States to file a memorandum expressing the views of the United States on the meaning of the treaty. Now, that is done by the Solicitor General of the United States. You remember that man that served our dinner after the Burner trial when he said, you got to do something about that law. Well, the Solicitor General of the United States at the time the Supreme Court asked for the Solicitor General to file a memorandum was Thurgood Marshall, who wrote the Merton's opinion. And I was in the clerk's office when the order came down from the Supreme Court, and I said, well, uh, Judge Marshall, it looks like we're going to have to go at this issue again. And he just slapped his knee and he said, that limitation has got to go away. It's bad. And I said, well, I agree with you, but your way is not the right way. He said, well, we'll see what the court says about that. So the case, uh, he filed a memorandum saying the Lisi decision in the Second Circuit was correct. There's no need for the Supreme Court to review the case, and they should not review it. But the court did review it, primarily, I think, because of Canada, Italy, and the United Kingdom as foreign sovereigns had asked them to review it as parties uh, to the convention. Now what happened? The court recessed for the summer. Tom Clark resigned from the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was appointed to replace him and was confirmed during the summer. And when the case came up from argument in November of 1967, Thurgood Marshall walked off the bench, so we were left with eight judges. Now, two weeks later, after a one-hour argument, the court issued a one-line order. The judgment below is affirmed by an equally divided court. So the lower decision stands. Now, they do that, historically, when they don't think the issue is quite ready for their intention and decision, or when they don't want to embarrass one of their colleagues. I knew the court agreed with our position, but they didn't want to write an opinion saying so because it would embarrass their newest member of the court. So for 20 years, we had to live uh, with the Lisi case all over the country until the Korean Airlines accident came along, the shoot-down case of Korean Airlines Flight 007. And in that case, the tickets were pretty bad, just as bad as Lisi, if not worse, Sean will remember. But because there were so many people from different states and different countries, I asked for the case to be consolidated in the District of Columbia 
because of the political issues involved and the international issues involving Russia and international law involving aircraft that are flying through someone's territory without permission. But my real reason was to get away from New York and get out of the Second Circuit because the only way you could get that lease issue back to the Supreme Court was to get some other court of appeals in the United States to disagree with it. Now you have a conflict between two federal appellate courts on a treaty of the United States. The Supreme Court has got to step in and resolve that conflict. And so we got the case sent to uh, Washington, D.C. The plaintiffs moved to strike the limit of liability because the tickets were the same as the leasing tickets and worse. And uh, the court refused. The district judge said, no, I think the leasing case is wrong. So he upheld the limit. Now we went up to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia said, we think the Lisi case is wrong. We don't agree with it. We're not, going to, we're not bound by it. We're not going to follow it. And so now you have the two circuits in conflict. So the plaintiffs asked the Supreme Court to hear the case to resolve the conflict. And we agreed that the Supreme Court should hear the case. Now we go back 20 years later. Judge Marshall's still on the court. Three of the other judges are still on the court. And this time, Judge Marshall stayed on the court to hear the arguments. And during the arguments, uh, when I got up to make my presentation, I, I said to the court, what has changed in 20 years? I said, the only thing that has changed is that one historic trial judge has looked at the law and he hasn't followed precedent by rote. And he dug into the law, and he found out that the Lisi case was wrong, and he went the other way. And Judge Justice Stevens, who was the oldest member of the court, leaned down and said, how did you get him to do it? And I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't hear that question. He said, how did you get the trial judge to do it? So I thought for a minute, I said, well, I'm not sure, but I must have been more persuasive with him than I was with you 20 years ago. The court cracked up. All the judges started laughing. All the courtrooms started laughing. And they decided the case 9-0 in favor of Korean Airlines, that Lisi is wrong. Now, there was one judgment which was saying Lisi, the, the Lisi case is wrong, and the lower court in the District of Columbia was right, so the limitation would apply. The ticket does not have to contain notice. That's not the purpose of the statement in the ticket. And the sanction only applies if you do not deliver a ticket. It doesn't matter if you deliver a defective ticket. And so there were four judges who wrote a separate opinion, one of them being Marshall. And the four judges wrote a separate opinion concurring in the judgment but disagreeing on the reason, saying Lisi is right, but the tickets were okay. The, the Korean tickets had an adequate notice in proper print and proper type size and so on which they didn't, but uh, that was their way out of embarrassing Marshall. So that was the end of that story. That's why in the Montreal Convention there is no ticket requirement whatsoever, no notice requirement. We put an end to it. Now, another thing that had happened since the Lisi case was in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Canada had uh, decided that Lisi was wrong and wouldn't follow it. And when it comes to international treaties, the highest court in each country that's a party to the treaty really has to look and see what the other countries are doing so we, 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 the court, do not interfere with what the executive branches of the governments have agreed on once we know what it is. 
Now let's look at the, uh, the evolution of the Montreal Convention. Well, this started way back in 1971, way back, and it was a long, arduous road. Uh, and I spoke out in 1971 and said that the forthcoming Guatemala City protocols were wrong. There's no way that you're going to get a $100,000 unbreakable limit of liability with absolute strict liability past the Senate. It won't happen, even with supplemental legislation, which constitutionally you cannot do. And so that's why Montreal Protocol 3 and 4 were doomed from the beginning. When uh, they finally came up in the Senate in 1983, Lee Kreinler, leading plaintiff's lawyer John Brennan, the head of USAIG, and I filed a memorandum with the Senate telling them that these protocols are wrong, they're bad, and they should be rejected by the Senate. Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted in favor of them 16 to 2 and recommended the full Senate give advice and consent. So then we embarked upon a series of meetings with senators on the committee. And the one meeting I remember was with the minority leader, Senator Byrd, from uh, West Virginia. And we met with him, and Lee was making his impassioned plea as a plaintiff's lawyer. John Brennan was talking about the business of insurance and how uh, no limit of liability would not increase the uh, limits of liability, and I could sense that Senator Byrd wasn't getting it. So I asked him if I could speak, and he said, of course, young man, you can speak. And I said, let me explain it to you this way. You have a son, he has two children, which I knew, and your son has his best friend, they live in West Virginia. Now, they're going to come up and visit you this weekend, assume that. Your son's going to go on to Bermuda and play golf for the weekend, and his best friend's going to go home. Your state eliminated all limitations of, on damages in wrongful death cases several years ago. The plane on which your son and his best friend are traveling never got off the ground in West Virginia, crashed on the runway. Your son and his best friend are killed. Your son's widow and two, your two grandchildren will get $100,000. That's it. The family of your son's best friend will get one, two, three, four million dollars, whatever uh, whatever his damages are under your law because he wasn't going to Bermuda. That's what this treaty will do if you ratify it. He looked at me and he said, you make a very good point. So he changed his vote. Most of the committee changed their vote, and the protocols were defeated in March of 1983. Now they just languished about. A lot of things happened in the meantime. The, the Japanese initiative was adopted in 1992 where the airlines of Japan did away with the limit of liability. Uh, up, they took it up to 100,000 special drawing rights and waived the defenses up to that amount. IATA got in the act. IATA in 1995 and 1996 did exactly what the Japanese had done. ICAO then got interested and said, oh, if the airlines are ready to do that, maybe we should get involved. And so ICAO, to this day, takes credit for the Montreal Convention. They had nothing to do with it except to provide a forum where the uh, diplomats could meet and, and discuss the matter. Uh, the, the Clinton White House tried to resuscitate Montreal Protocol 3 and appointed a special study group that I was on, Lee Kreinler was on, American Airlines, uh, insurers, about 12 of us, all the government departments. And the, the mandate from the White House is, or to us, we've got six weeks to come up with a compromise that you can agree on, or I'm not going to send 
Montreal Protocol 3 and 4 to the Senate again. They've been defeated once, and if they're not, if you don't have a compromise on how you can bolster them up, we're not going to do it again. Well, we couldn't reach a compromise. I was there just to explain how the Japanese initiative worked, how simple it was. You could always waive the limit under the convention. Without amending the convention, you can waive the limit. You could waive the limit before, during, and after an accident. And I always felt that if perhaps it wasn't the Japanese initiative, the American interests in the special White House study group might have had a different uh, attitude if it was the Canadian initiative or the British initiative instead of the Japanese. Anything Japanese was frowned upon. Then IATA, seeing what uh, could be done, organized their own conference. And that's when I met Lauren Clark. And I was at that point in life, as far as the airline industry is concerned, and IATA was concerned, I was the Antichrist. Because there I was doing away with their limit of liability. And I had advised the Japanese to throw it out. And I was urging everybody to throw it out. The United States packaged Montreal Protocol 3 and 4 together. They both had to go to the Senate, and they both had to be ratified, or neither would be. Uh, Four only dealt primarily with cargo. Nobody really cared about cargo. So I ought to convene a conference in Montreal with uh, government approval. They had to get antitrust immunity to be able to have airlines sit down and talk about a law that had nothing to do with, with commerce. Uh, but anyway, that's the way it was. And all the government departments were there as observers. There were 40 airlines. We were in Montreal or Washington for a week, as I recall. One afternoon was devoted to our presenting the Japanese initiative and analyzing it for all the other airlines to see if it was worthwhile pursuing. And and the Japanese airlines assigned me the task of uh, explaining it to everybody, which I did. And eventually everybody thought, that's a pretty good idea. If that'll preserve the existence of the Warsaw Convention otherwise, we should follow the Japanese initiative. And basically, that's what the IATA Agreement of 95 does. And then in 96, it was just a means of implementing. Uh, the An interesting thing at the uh, conference in, in Washington, the American carriers, ATA, were obsessed with having the passenger representatives have a voice in the development of the agreements that the airlines wanted to have. And we, I was adamantly opposed to it. Sean will remember the guy that was driving us crazy in the Korean case. I think he was crazy, but they invited him to speak. And I said to the American Airlines representative, this is not going to make the Korean Airlines representatives here very happy. They're sitting in the front row of the, of the conference room, and this guy's going to be standing up there talking about how they killed his daughter. Not right. So the Asian Airlines asked me to meet with them at night before uh, Mr. Hans Ephraimson Apt was to speak. And asked me, what should we do? And I said, well, if I were you, I'd just go up and walk out. As soon as he takes the stand, go up and walk out. You don't have to stand there and be offended and insulted. So that's what we did. The Asian community walked out. We don't know what he said, but it didn't have any bearing on what transpired. American Airlines was very angry with me and said, you shouldn't have done that. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. What if it was your accident that he was the passenger representative and he was going to get up there and beat your airline on the head? Make a difference? course it would. So anyway, we now have the Montreal, or the uh, IATA Intercarrier Agreements of 95 and 96. ICAO gets interested. They appointed a special study group. They put me on it with uh, Ken Walter of British Airways and uh, t Tony Mercer of Air New Zealand, Vijay Punasami, who was uh, then working uh, at, uh, at ICAO, or 
I think. And uh, after weeks and weeks and weeks, actually months, we all came to the conclusion to save and preserve the good features of the Warsaw Convention, the Hague Protocol, uh, the Guadalajara Convention, and Montreal Protocol 4. And if we need a new convention, let's just make it into one. I didn't think we needed a new convention, but I was in a, a minority and eventually went with the majority. And so what you saw when Montreal, was, by the time the Montreal Conference was organized, you had, in effect, the Japanese initiative as the basic liability provision for passengers. But at Montreal, there were other things that had to be done, and it's a good thing that IATA was uh, in the room because we were able to prevent things from happening. For example, the United States government position was that there had to be recovery for a standalone mental injury. Now, we put in a strong paper from IATA that that's just crazy because uh, you're not ever, never going to be able to disprove a, a standalone mental injury. We're talking about fear, fright, not an accident, fear, fright, an aborted takeoff, an aborted landing, an engine that has to be shut down, a bang, a lightning strike, anything. And I said, I can get psychiatrists with great credentials who can come in and testify how frightened everybody in this room is. And then I can go out and get another group who will come in and say how that psychiatrist is crazy. So you're never going to get the cases resolved. You've got to leave that out. The United States was adamant on having it in. The other thing the United States was really adamant on was the fifth jurisdiction. That caused a lot of problems for a lot of foreign airlines. They thought that their airlines were going to be sued in the United States by their passengers from their country to get high damages from the American courts. And we were able to convince them through lobbying in the corridors, in the room, in the corridors, in the hotels, the bars, and the restaurants. It's not going to happen because we have a doctrine known as a form of nonconvenience, and our courts are not interested in assessing damages for people from Saudi Arabia that are killed in a crash in Saudi Arabia or even in the United States. That's an issue for the Saudi Arabian courts. So you're not going to have that that risk. And we cited the uh, KLM Tenerife uh, case where all of the Dutch uh, families had sued Pan Am in New York and the convention didn't even apply because they weren't on the Pan Am plane. And they were all dismissed to Holland on foreign nonconvenience grounds because judges and juries in New York don't have enough time to deal with assessing Dutch damages about which they know nothing. We have enough problems of our own. So we were able to persuade people to agree to the fifth jurisdiction, which was insistent upon by the American delegation. In fact, the head of the delegation came to me and said, if you don't get that from these countries giving me the task, uh, we're walking out of here. Well, I really didn't think they'd walk out. But I was able to persuade Japan, China, and Saudi Arabia, and several other countries, it's not going to hurt you. And you want the United States in the convention, not out of it. And so eventually it's in there. Of course, uh, uh, punitive damages were out. You didn't have to put it out because our courts had said you can't get punitive damages in a Warsaw case. You're not going to get it in a Montreal case. Montreal Protocol 4 went in unchanged. The cargo carriers of the United States were sitting in the balcony right above the IATA delegation. And if we hadn't uh, maintained... Uh, the line for them, they would have been dropping things on us, I'm sure. Uh, we also were able to prevent governments from putting in the word occurrence or event in place of accident 
in Article 17 for passenger death or injury. You can imagine uh, what chaos that would have caused for the airlines. So the no sanctions on ticket irregularity or non-ticket delivery or anything. It was all taken out. Uh, the uh, right of recourse was put in. I didn't think it had to be put in because you always have it anyway, but they put it in, and as you'll see in a minute, that has caused a problem already in the United States because we argued from the airline point of view, don't put new words in a treaty. If you're adopting the same liability rule, take it as it is. We've got 70 years of jurisprudence. You can rely on those Warsaw cases to apply the Montreal Convention. Don't change a word. If you change a word, there's going to be a judge in Illinois or Florida or California who's going to say, ah, they mean something different. That's exactly what's happened uh, in the uh, putting the right of recourse separately in the convention. We now have the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California saying a right of recourse is not a right to damages. Try to figure that one out logically. So a subrogation action brought against an airline outside the two-year period of limitation is not time-barred because it's a right of recourse. It's not a right to damages. And the two-year limitation applies to a claim for damages, and that doesn't include a claim for recourse. So putting in those words in Article 29... And, and sorry, in, in the uh, article that deals with uh, recourse, I think it's 35 or 37, has blown a hole in part of the convention. Another place where the convention has been damaged is adding the words in Article 29, whether under this convention or in contract or in tort or otherwise. Now, that wasn't necessary, but most of the European countries wanted it in there. And we said, if you put it in, we're going to read something into it. The chairman of the Montreal Conference at the end of the conference made a statement on the record. The only reason we're putting this language in, the exclusivity provision of the convention, Article 29, is to make sure that the courts will know that the treaty is exclusive of all domestic law. That's not the way they read it in Illinois, and it's not the way they read it in California. They said, oh, whether under this convention or in contract or in tort or otherwise means you don't have to rely on the convention for your cause of action. You can bring it in under state law and still go into the convention, and that only provides the remedy. So again, by adding words and not listening to IATA's position, uh, we now have resurrected the non-exclusivity of the convention cause of action where it applies. Fortunately, I understand that the High Court in England is a little better at interpreting the convention than the United States, and in the Hook case has said the Montreal Convention is exclusive and there is no other basis for any cause of action in England. Unfortunately, we are not that good at uh, interpreting our own treaties. So we have that hole. We have the hole about uh, uh, the, the right of recourse or right of damages. The fifth jurisdiction. The very first case involving American citizens or residents to bring the jurisdiction in the United States against a foreign air carrier, this is the Air France accident in the South Atlantic, the very first case, two Texans living temporarily in Brazil, very case that was cited by the U.S. delegation in Montreal in 1999, it was filed in Texas, transferred to California with all the other cases filed against the manufacturers on behalf of all the non-U.S. 
passengers. And the, and the judge in California, faced with this huge case, dismissed everybody to France on foreign non-convenience grounds, including the two Americans. The very case that the United States government insisted we have to have the first, fifth jurisdiction to take care of our people, our citizens, and our residents so that they can get damages under their own law and not some foreign law. Dismissed. Now, I don't know how they're going to sort that out. I mean, that is a mess for those uh, two families. The lawyers, friends of mine, they asked me to get involved, and I, I, I said, no, I'll only tell you what you should have done, and you should dismiss your case and file a new case against Air France only. What they had done was join all the manufacturers, and that was their mistake. And uh, Lee Kreinler's son has been very critical of the guys in Texas who did that because the way Article 17 is set up in Article 21 in the passengers, all you have to show is the accident and the damages. If you show damages of three million, now you gotta remember there is no limitation of liability for passenger injury or death in the Montreal Convention. None. Despite the fact that some defense lawyers in the United States think that there is a first level limit of a hundred thousand SDR. There is no limit. Unless there's one under the local law that applies under the other provision of the convention that questions of who can sue and what they can recover shall be determined by the law of the court seized to the case. But all a claimant has to do is prove the accident and the damages. If the damages are three million, now the airline has to decide, do I pay or do I try to prove I didn't cause the accident to any degree? So there's a complete shifting. And, and anyone who ever tries to prove they didn't cause the accident to any degree is going to have a very difficult time as an airline unless you've got a case like the Aeromexico case in Cerritos, uh, of, of something of that nature. Uh, so that here we have the first case, and uh, the lawyers didn't understand the law, and they didn't consult lawyers who understood the law until after the case was filed. And now they're back in France, where they don't have much chance of uh, recovering the damages uh, that the people have sustained. ICAO taking credit for the Montreal Convention, is now trying to resurrect the uh, Guadalajara Convention, no, the Rome Convention. And not only that, but extend it to terrorist acts and make the airlines pay for the people, including the terrorists, that destroy the airplane. I mean, the Rome Convention has never been involved in any accident in the history of aviation. Local laws take care of ground damage is absolute liability, and you prove your damages, anything falling on or off a plane or the plane itself. I did some research and found a case in, uh, in New York in 1812, not an airplane, but a balloon, strict liability. Pay the damages you cause. We don't need it. We've never needed it. No country in the world has ever needed it, yet they're trying to resurrect it now in the euphoria of having, they think, brought about the Montreal Convention. We have the United States Department of Transportation extending its tentacles outside the United States to uh, bring proceedings involving delays in foreign countries because the planes were destined for the United States. We have the European Commission and the European Court of Justice saying that, oh, no, no, the Article 19 delay doesn't apply in this case, doesn't apply in that case. Article 19 applies to delay. The Warsaw cases on delay 
Delay can happen from the time you leave your house, from the time you buy your ticket. The damages are economic damages. You can only recover what you've laid out of pocket. I have a case going to the court next Thursday in San Jose, California, on that very issue. All you can get is your out-of-pocket expenses. This guy's claiming all kinds of mental injury and upset and a cold and missing work and this and that. But all I said to the judge, we'll pay what he paid out of his pocket. We spent $90 on a cab. So give me the receipt, I'll give you the $90. That's all you get. Now the case is going to trial next uh, Thursday in San Jose. And local regulatory consumer-driven authorities are not paying attention to the convention in Europe or the United States. The convention deals with these things. Bumping is a delay. Bumping is a delay in the United States. But we have some courts in Illinois that say, no, bumping isn't a delay. It's non-performance. And another court says, well, bumping is a delay if you put them on the next plane. A, a flight that's canceled is a delay. But if you put them on the next plane, then it's not a delay for which you can get damages because you cannot collect under the convention for the fact of a delay. You can only collect for the damage caused by the delay. The European regulations, as I understand it, provide for damages from the fact of a delay. And that's contrary to the convention and contrary to all the commitments of the European Union members to each other and to us. So I've told my clients in China, ignore them. Ignore the European Union regulations. You don't have any European Union travel. You have international travel under the Montreal Convention on every flight you operate into Europe. So ignore it. And if they, uh, they give you a hard time at the regulatory level, I'll draw up some retaliatory regulations for China that you can impose against European Union member airlines only. And that usually changes the, the mood of people. The United States does that a lot. So those are the challenges ahead. Somebody's going to have to become the champion of these causes. I think the governments are tired of hearing from me. And Lee Kreinler, unfortunately, has passed away. So we need a new champion in the United States. We need new champions in Europe uh, to keep the... Uh, Montreal Convention secure. We thought it would last 100 years without any holes in it. We've already got five or six holes uh, shot through it already. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry to go on so long, but once you wind me up and get me started on this stuff, I can go on forever. Uh, I'll be glad to answer any questions, if you have any. Someone must ask a question. I would usually look to Harold, but we're going to invite him to give a vote of thanks in due course, so he'll have to wait for a moment. Before anyone jumps out of their seat, I've got one. If, I'm very grateful, by the way, that you are looking to create new legal disputes, and I would very much like you to encourage that all that you can from my personal perspective. But if you could add one provision to the Montreal Convention, what would it be? If I could add one? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I suppose it would have to do with exclusivity, and I'd, I'd make it a little clearer than it presently is. And uh, some courts in the United States, uh, many courts have, particularly in Boston and, and Illinois, have said there was no accident here, therefore the convention doesn't apply. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse. You, if the convention applies, it applies. If you don't have any rights under the convention, you don't have any rights, period. And you could put the uh, language of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in the Seng case, into the convention and make it stronger so that there's no out, no escape. If the convention applies, you either have a right under the convention or you don't. 
Anybody else? A question? John. George, you spoke uh, quite clearly about the uh, desirability of keeping uh, as much as possible to the same language in Montreal, so that the existing Warsaw jurisprudence would still apply. Um, but do you think that there's a risk um, that <coughs> uh, a number of interpretations opened because of the language issue, resulting from the fact that or of course, was in the French, the official language of Warsaw was French, whereas the uh, language version of Montreal is not. It's English and other languages. And uh, do you think there's a risk that that could reopen the, the, the meaning of some of the, uh, the terms that have come to be uh, accepted? Well, once you, once you involve, my experience, once you involve the French courts, there's a risk of anything going wrong in interpreting the convention. So... Uh, but I think that the, uh, if there were a new provision to be added to the convention, it would be in the five official languages. The Warsaw jurisprudence, yes, in the English world, English-speaking world, is the interpretation of the official French. But there's been 70 years of court decisions around the world that have agreed on what the terms mean, so that there's no risk there, as far as I'm concerned, on what uh, the Warsaw rules mean today. And in the Montreal rules, if you put anything in, it goes in in five languages, and each one is official. Uh, maybe the French courts would interpret the French differently than we would, but we wouldn't care because we're going to put, apply the English language of the Montreal Convention. Your, your question was breaking in and out because of the audio, so I'm not sure I answered your question. Mr. Gates. And I'm not giving you back the, uh, <laughs> the picture, Sean. If you, Can I have a it's, copy? It's, it's in my mementos. <laughs> So you got the United States and you got Chicago. What do you do about Chicago? And Chicago Convention? No, the foreign non-convenience. In Chicago? Well, the biggest problem in Chicago is that Boeing moved its headquarters there. And so now, it, 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 as you know, Bob Clifford, he said the best thing that ever happened to his law practice was Boeing moving their corporate headquarters to Chicago because he files all his cases in the state court <clears throat> of Illinois, and they can't be removed to the federal court, and Illinois won't dismiss them on foreign non-convenience grounds. But you've only got a couple of aberrational decisions in the U.S. in the last couple of years where foreign non-convenience decisions have not been thrown out of the U.S. There's only a couple of them. Uh, and, and it's always in the discretion of the judge, and uh, you have to show an abuse of discretion or failure to apply the rule properly. But I would say today that 99% of the foreign cases in aviation that are filed in the United States against anybody are thrown out on foreign non-convenience grounds. You just don't read about them all. I send them all to Yasser Ozturk in Istanbul because he's writing a book in Turkey on it to keep the Turkish people at home. So uh, I think that's a dead issue in the United States as far as foreign cases are concerned. Uh, uh, George, uh, thank you very much for what was an excellent presentation. I was just intrigued with your observations on the Air France decision and the sort of concept of forum non-convenience under Montreal, which has obviously been applied now. And, and I think in the um, the uh, Western Caribbean decision, the US, um, I think DOT made observations that forum non-convenience could apply in Warsaw cases, which was contrary to the Hosaka, Hokada decision. Is your view that it has no application at all in the Montreal context? It has no application. It should not be applied by any judge to American citizens or residents 
who are filing in the United States against a foreign air carrier under the fifth jurisdiction of the Montreal Convention. It should not apply. But of course, the, uh, uh, the judge has the discretion to apply it. Now, what we have to do is at ATA uh, or IATA, or somebody's going to have to get the Congress to uh, amend the, uh, the Title 28 to put a provision in that where jurisdiction is asserted by qualified U.S. citizens or residents under the fifth jurisdiction of the Montreal Convention, there shall not be a form nonconvenience dismissal, period, full stop. That's the only way you can cure it, because once you've got, you've got 460 some federal district judges around the United States, they all have discretion, and the only way you can uh, beat them is if you can prove that they abused their discretion. So the, the mistake here was uh, these people had a perfect case. Uh, all of their resi permanent residence in Disha was in Texas. They were working in Brazil. They were traveling from Brazil to France on Air France, so there was no other jurisdiction in the United States except the fifth jurisdiction. That's the case, if you go in the minutes of the Montreal Conference, that's the case that was described by the American delegate as to why they had to have the fifth jurisdiction. That very case, not those people, but that fact pattern. And here it comes up and the judge throws it out. But only the Congress can uh, step in. You're right, the, the jurisdiction, the foreign nonconvenience applies in Warsaw and Montreal cases, but in Montreal cases, not to U.S. residents. Should not. Uh, hi, George. Uh, just one for you from the EU point of view. I was intrigued by the fact that you say delays, you can only claim for the damages under this law of yours. I, I think it's good. Could I have your comment about the fact that EU have put these charges on airlines for just a delay? Well, I'm hesitant to tell the EU what to do. The U.S. government doesn't listen to me, so, uh, but I think they're wrong. <clears throat> Uh, I think they're, uh, they're putting the uh, members of the EU in direct violation of their international obligations to the other members of the Montreal Convention. And that's why I've told the airlines of China to ignore them. And if they, if they take uh, disciplinary action against the airlines of China, well, we'll teach them some Chinese uh, disciplinary regulations. Nick. George, I think we should doft our cap to the fact that the bottom right-hand corner, as I look at it, there's a satellite. Um, you mentioned in your presentation that one of the uh, useful aspects of the Montreal Convention is that it did not incorporate any liability for mental injury. As we look towards an era where Virgin Galactic is in danger of actually getting off the ground, uh, what do you see of the uh, history of air law being reflected in what might become space law? I'm an earth lawyer. <laughs> I don't know anything about space law. I don't want to know about it. But the Montreal Convention might serve as a model, but I doubt it. I mean, if space law, anybody who goes into space takes all the risks, and you've got to sign all kinds of uh, agreements before you can go into space in any capacity. So I, I don't get the relationship between the two myself. And I don't venture into space law. It's, uh, it's uh, as... as uh, Lauren Clark said at the Montreal Convention when the delegate of the Holy See wanted to talk about mental injury recovery, Lauren deferred to him and said that uh, his jurisdiction, while he doesn't have an airport and he doesn't have an air airline, his jurisdiction goes higher than IATA. So space goes higher than IATA's. But the uh, uh, 
I don't see uh, any relation between the Montreal Convention and what they want to do in space as far as liability. I could use it as an example. There are people working on it. Any other questions? Carol. Um, George, I wonder if you could just throw some light on some words. that, um, In Article 17, um, I hope I've got them right off the top of my head, the, in the course of any of the operations of embarking or disembarking, um, there caused a lot of problem with interpretation over the years. And I was rather surprised that exactly the same words came out, or pretty well the same words, in Montreal. Was there a lot of discussion over this? No, that was a part of the Warsaw Convention and jurisprudence that uh, the airlines were happy with. I mean, the interpretation is there. Uh, The airlines and the the courts in the United States have drawn not a fine line, but a a geographical and activity line that's satisfactory (coughs) to the airlines. And so each case has to be judged on its own. I've had cases where people have requested wheelchair, wheelchairs to make transfers at, uh, uh, at Heathrow or, or at uh, Skiphole, and the wheelchair didn't show up, and they try to make it on themselves and fall. And it's a different airline, and it's a different terminal and everything, and uh, uh, you take the position that they, they were either in the act of disembarking or embarking. And when they requested a wheelchair and it wasn't provided, the airline's taking the risk of the injury. If you're not requesting a wheelchair, you're on your own. But if you if you need assistance and it isn't provided, then, then you're still under the airline's care. That's the way the airlines feel, to my knowledge. I think that, that will be it for questions. I think everyone will agree with me that um, George is a walking encyclopedia of air law. And uh, if any of the references were a bit quick for you, we can plug his book at this point and say that you can find them in the Kluwer publication, Liability Rules Applicable to International Air Transportation as Developed by the Courts of the United States, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, and it's a riveting good read. George, thank you very much from me, but speaking of walking encyclopedias, uh, I would like now to call upon a founding member of the Air Law Group to formally propose the thanks to you. I therefore would like Harold... Kaplan, to come forward and uh, say a few words. George, do you want to come and take a, yeah. a seat for this purpose? Mr. Chairman, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot imagine with what pleasure I come to propose a vote of thanks to my dear friend, George Tompkins. Uh, I had the good fortune to meet George something over 50 years ago when he was the newest associate in his firm caused, as he pointed out, by Cy Condon slipping on the sidewalk. I was even more junior and the whole of my personal career has been enriched by contact with George. Uh, Not least of the benefits I enjoyed was he was the first person to introduce me to that great man now departed, uh, Lee Kreindler. Uh, Lee Kreindler, of course, opposed limits of liability, as all decent Americans did and do. Um, And I was so impressed by Lee, I invited him to London to meet the leading underwriters of the British Aviation Insurance Company, uh, with which I was then employed and the leading Lloyd Syndicate at the Ariel. 
And Lee quietly, elegantly explained why limits of liability were wrong. And to my utter amazement, the two leading underwriters agreed with him. I now realize that they could see the business prospects arising out of the abandonment of limits, whereas I had my eyes fixed on the ground and the Warsaw Convention as it then was. George has beautifully illustrated to us what a dedicated scholar, a dedicated lawyer, and a persuasive advocate can do when he puts his mind to it. George, I think, has probably defended more Warsaw cases during his career than any other man on earth. I got to calling him the Warsaw Warrior in recognition of his preeminence in that field. Uh, I would love to give you my take on the Montreal Convention. I was very nearly convinced by what he said, that the 99 Montreal Convention was necessary. Very nearly convinced it was necessary. Not quite. And as for forum non-convenience, why I hope George and his colleagues find some way to bring that before the Supreme Court of the United States. Because George was good enough to say that uh, the English system of justice and our courts had some merit. And we have an excellent decision. In our Court of Appeal, it relates to the original Warsaw Convention, not to the Montreal, which says the choices of jurisdiction for plaintiffs are just that. They should be respected. So these poor guys who went were sent to France wouldn't have experienced that if the English law view, in the case of Milor, and British Airways had prevailed. So I hope he'll find ways to do that. But above all, George tells us what a determined man, a knowledgeable lawyer, a great scholar, and he is a great teacher. George teaches in many parts of the world, can achieve. And I do not think that we have the equivalent here in the United Kingdom. I would like the United Kingdom government, and I see some representatives here, when they have problems in air law, to summon the air law group and say, what do you guys think about this? What do you think about that? How do you think we should approach this? That is what the air law group was founded for nearly 50 years ago. So I ask you to join me with a hearty vote of thanks to a man who has given inspiration to all of us in this room. Thank you.